On this episode of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, we discuss the latest news in the ASC industry, including an update on the PPP and the Provider Relief Fund reporting requirements, review recent experiences with clients, discuss the recently released 2019 report to Congress on Medicare's program oversight of accrediting organizations, and in our focus segment, discuss patient registration, physician disclosure, advanced directives, and grievances. Welcome to the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, the longest-running podcast specifically focused on the freestanding ambulatory surgery industry. The ASC Podcast with John Gailey is brought to you through the generous support of our sponsors, Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies, Surgical Information Systems, Intelair, Encompass Healthcare Data Solutions, Medicus IT, and BHG Patient Lending. This podcast would not be possible without the support of our sponsors, all of whom have been carefully screened for the quality of their products and services and their dedication to the ASC industry. For more information about our sponsors, visit our website at ASCpodcast.com and please consider them for your center's needs. Welcome to episode 123 of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey for February 7th, 2021. We're recording from our studios in Spencerport, New York. This is Susan Cronkite, Chief Researcher for the ASC Podcast with John Gailey and Senior Nurse Consultant for Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies. Joining me is John Gailey, the owner of Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies and recognized as one of the nation's leading experts in the ambulatory surgery industry. Mr. Gailey is the author of over 10 books on the ASC industry and a frequent industry speaker on regulatory accreditation and finance issues. So we uh, took a little bit of a break after the ASC administrators boot camp mm-hmm. uh, to, uh, before we recorded this week. And then now, <laughs> now as we we're putting together, we're uh, recording on a Sunday. And as we were putting together uh, all of the information here, we realized uh, – how much has transpired since we last spoke to everybody. So we got a lot of work to do here. Uh, but back to the ASC Administrators Bootcamp, what an incredible success. Uh, we were very excited about the response to it. Um, and uh, it went off really without a hitch. I don't think we had any real – we had mm-hmm. no technical problems. Yeah. I guess it means we're getting better about this technical stuff. <laughs> and heaven knows that the studio is uh, doing a good job for us. Um but very, uh, very good out, uh, outcomes, and uh, we are. Uh, we did announce that we're going to be doing a nursing director boot camp and a business office manager boot camp. The next one to come up will be the nursing director boot camp, and then we're also going to be uh, doing another administrators boot camp later on this year, and a mentoring program also that'll be going along with that for for administrators that are kind of new to the business and would like a kind of more of a hands on, you know, one on one type relationship mm-hmm. with a mentor. And, you know, so one of the things that came out of the administrator's boot camp is that uh, that walkthrough, the conditions for coverage, which we did in four hours <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and rushed through it, yes. uh, realized that that, uh, that really is probably going to be a, a great single topic 
conference coming up. Yeah. So, yeah, you could spend quite a bit of time on that to really do it justice, I think. Right. And I think a lot of the uh, the listeners in the, the boot camp really thought that that was, uh, I don't know if I want to say the highlight of it because we had a lot of great interaction, mm-hmm. but but certainly one of the most valuable things that we did during that. So uh, keep an eye out for that. We'll probably be uh, trying to put that together shortly. Um <clears throat> We also learned so much doing the boot camp, uh, mainly about how little time we seem to have had for all the material we had mm-hmm. to cover. Uh, we did it in four days, and and throughout it, we felt uh, you know that we rushed through it. So we are going to be pre-recording in the future. We're not going to make the the live portion any longer, but we're going to pre-record some sections of it and have the the attendees you know listen to some some record recording items and mm-hmm. then ahead of know, time, right? And then try to focus uh, the the live section on things that we would want more mm-hmm. interaction. On. And I so, think just encouraging more interaction. We yeah. found having everybody open up in their Zoom so they could see each other was helpful. We did that kind of toward the end, but that right. was really useful. Yeah. So we're learning every time we do one of these things. I think they just get better. Yeah, so it was, it was a lot of fun. And, uh, of course, uh, we're going to be coming up on our nursing director conference mm-hmm. uh, shortly. So uh, keep an eye out. We really have been so busy, haven't had a chance to get any publicity out for any of this stuff. So it will be happening soon. Um, I'm still waiting for the vaccine, Sue, uh, Sue and you've mm-hmm. already had your second shot. I did. Yes, congratulations. A couple days ago. Thank you. And uh, we were nervous. We canceled our vacation. Why do we call that Many a vacation? Many reasons we did. Well, because for one thing, it's been very busy for us, so yeah. it wouldn't have really been much of a vacation. So it's a yeah. 13-hour drive to go work somewhere else. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> but also, yeah, yeah be- so. between getting the vaccine and we're hoping you can get the vaccine. Right. And so. Yeah. So those yeah. of you that have been listening for, listeners for three or four years here uh, know that uh, we tend to sneak away to a place in uh, Hilton Head, you know, at least twice a year. Mm-hmm. And uh, we've had to cancel our, at least our February trip. So hopefully yeah. we'll get away in April or May. But yeah, but we were concerned that Sue was going to have enough side effects from it. Uh, But you were pretty good. Yeah, I slept most of the day. I was just very tired, (laughs) had a bit of a headache, um, low-grade fever, so just very little chills, but really just that one day. It it tends to start, I think, about 12 hours after you get the shot, lasts a day to two days, um, you know, but most people get through it pretty well, and it's so worth it either way. And Sue, we have been very busy lately in mm-hmm. the company again. I know that's a that's a mantra that we've been saying for a long time, <laughs> but we picked up two clients recently who uh, called us after they had lost their accreditation. So I think there's a lesson to be learned in this. Um, don't get into a position where you lose your accreditation. And uh, both of them lost it for a variety of reasons, but... Mm-hmm. Uh, so we're working with them right now to get their accreditation. Both of them are shut down at this mm-hmm. point. And I think the biggest takeaway is that you are responsible to know the regulations, yeah. know the the um, know the criteria that you have to meet because you can't always depend on the accrediting agency. Some are better than others, right? Um, but it just depends on who your surveyor is. They might miss a uh, you know one area, and then you know the next time you have a survey, it could go really badly. So you have to, like John always says, it's an open book test. You know, if you look at the regulations. You know, just make sure you're meeting those, then then you're not going to have a, a terrible surprise down the road. Well, and another big takeaway from it is both of those centers had good surveys mm-hmm. up until the one in which they had a bad that's, one. Yeah, that's That was uh, very disappointing. Mm-hmm. We're actually kind of disappointed in the survey organization in this case. Um, um, and, you know, that they 
uh, did not catch these things mm-hmm. because these things actually, you know, because again, you know, how many times have I told people, never tell me, I'm not going to worry about that because we've never had mm-hmm. a problem in the past. And generally, it's not this big. Generally, it's yeah, right. one little area might be missed because it, it wasn't noticed during the first survey. They didn't observe that particular type of procedure or whatever, but this was... This was just really a disappointing one, though, because it's yeah. things they should have caught. Absolutely. And we're going to talk, actually, about the accrediting organization, uh, at the annual report to Congress of uh, from CMS of, uh, of the uh, compliance of the accrediting mm-hmm. organizations with the conditions for coverage and, yeah. and surveying there for There were some it. surprises for you there. Very big surprises, uh, uh, especially for a data junkie like me. I know you fell asleep when I was, I was yeah. even explaining numbers, them numbers, to numbers, you. <laughs> <laughs> no, you were interested Goodbye. in the results. It's just yeah. the statistics were yeah, a little, yeah. little bit exciting. Picking through all the details is yeah. not my... So we'll talk yeah. about that in a bit. So, yeah, so, you know, keep in mind, you know, stay on top of things. Surveyors can show up in any moment. And by the way, that's what happened in both these cases. These were unannounced surveys uh, that that caused the problem. They were mm-hmm. not expecting the survey organization to be out there. Um, so, uh, and again, a survey organization can show up in your doorstep anytime, not just within that three, you know, that usually six-month time frame mm-hmm. uh, with your three years. So uh, hopefully that's a big lesson. So we have a lot of news going on. I'm, I think I'm going to have to read some of this uh, because some of it is uh, I did the research for, as you all know, Sue does a lot of the research for me, but I had to do the research on the, the PPP program and the Provider Relief Fund uh, research. So let's start with uh, PPP forgiveness program. Uh, for those of you that received, uh, you know, the first round of PPP funding, that's the, uh, so the U.S. Uh, Small Business Administration, also known as the SBA, and the Treasury Department published updated paycheck protection program, in other words, PPP, uh, loan forgiveness guidance and new forms. One of the forms is a simplified one-page application for borrowers that received a PPP loan of $150,000 or less. So if you if you received less than $150,000, you just have to pay, fill out this one form and you don't have to provide documentation. So the form is entitled the PPP, it's going to be hard to keep saying that, the mm-hmm. PPP loan forgiveness <laughs> application form. Especially because we say PPE all yeah, the right. time. So <laughs> and I, did you notice that now I've not been referring to PPE now, I've been referring to PPP <laughs> when I talk about PPP, PPE, oh my goodness. So anyway, this application form is 3508S and it should be used by ASCs that received a loan of less than $150,000. And this is the information that's going to be on that form. So it's relatively simple, Sue. Why don't you just go through it? Okay. So the form requests information about the amount borrowed, the disbursement date, employees' data, um, meaning the totals, the dates of the covered period, the amount of the loan spent on payroll, and the amount of the loan for which forgiveness is requested. Um, the ASCs that complete the form are not required to submit any supporting documentation with the application, but they are required to maintain payroll, non-payroll, and other documents that might be requested during a review or an audit by the F- SBA. So so this is good news for many organizations that received less than 150000 For example, our company received, uh, I think it was $107,000. Um, <laughs> but I think we filled the form out before the revised form came out. So uh, we've already been granted forgiveness for, for that loan. Um, so, uh, so a very simple uh, process. Process for those less than one hundred fifty thousand. Now, the SBA and the Treasury Department also released two other PPP loan forgiveness applications, and that's the three five zero eight and the Form three five zero eight EZ. Borrowers must submit payroll and non-payroll documentation when applying for loan forgiveness with those forms, which provide lists of required documents. And in addition, uh, SBA and the Treasury Department release Form three five zero eight D 
which certain individuals must use to disclose controlling interest in an entity applying for the PPP loans. Um, so in our show notes, I'm, I've provided a good resource from the Journal of Accountancy uh, that'll help you, uh, that guide you, and also give you some references to the uh, documents that you need to download and, and fill out. And then moving on to the CARES Act Provider Relief Fund reporting requirements. So those of you that received Medicare CARES Act Provider Relief Funds, and there were uh, three tranches of it, in other words, three different uh, batches of it, uh, the last one just coming out recently, recipients will report their use of the Provider Relief Fund payments using their normal method of accounting, which is either on a cash or an accrual basis. If you don't know what I'm talking about, a cash or accrual basis – perhaps you should go listen to the finance and accounting seminar we did in December. Mm-hmm. Um, and they need to provide the following information. So healthcare-related expenses attributable to coronavirus that another resource or another source has not reimbursed and is not obligated to reimburse, which includes general and administrative and other healthcare-related expenses. Um, and all that information is defined in a document that's going to be on our, our show notes. The uh, PRF payment amounts not fully extend, expended on healthcare-related expenses attributed to coronavirus are then applied to patient care lost revenues. And the documentation requirements for lost revenue calculations are also defined in the document in our show notes. Uh, it's way too detailed for us to go into mm-hmm. here and Sue would fall asleep and <laughs> um, and we'd probably be talking until midnight mm-hmm. and then the puppy wouldn't get her food. So um, needless to say, there's a lot of details. And I guess another point I should make, Sue, is that uh, this isn't something – unless you're an accountant listening to this, this isn't something that generally you're going to fill out. You're going to probably rely on your accountants because, you know, the same people that do your taxes, for example, since they'll be familiar with the those types of forms and they probably helped you get the, the, uh, the, the, the documentation in the first place. But it's important for you to know because you're going to have to provide all this information to them. So, uh, so in the situation where you're going to have to use lost revenue calculation, in other words, you didn't expend – all of the money that you received in the provider relief fund, um, you're going to have to to uh, to look at uh, toward lost revenue calculations. And um, so, what you would do is you would choose to apply the payroll relief fund payments toward lost revenue using one of the following options, up to the amount of the difference. So it could be the difference between the 2019 and 2020 actual patient care revenue. Uh, the difference between the 2020 budgeted and the 2020 actual patient care revenue, and that's if you have a budget. And then if you do that, you're going to have to show proof of that budget. I would venture to say most surgery centers, especially most of our listeners, probably don't have the level of a formal budget that uh, you would need to use. This This is more likely for hospital-based centers or maybe centers that are affiliated with a major uh, corporation. Uh, or calculated I love this last one calculated by any reasonable method of estimating revenue if a recipient wishes to use an alternative reasonable methodology for calculating lost revenues attributed or attributable to coronavirus the recipient must submit a description of the methodology an explanation of why the methodology is reasonable and establish how the identified lost revenues were in fact a loss attributable to the coronavirus as opposed to a loss attributed to some other source all recipients seeking to use this methodology face an increased likelihood of an audit uh, the the uh, HRSA uh, will notify a recipient if their proposed methodology is not reasonable, and then they're going to give you some time to correct that situation. So I really think most of you are probably just going to look at the difference between the actual patient revenue between 2019 and 2020 and, um, and then apply that toward the amount of money that you received. Mm-hmm. 
So interestingly, if the recipients do not expend the PRF funds in full by the end of 2020, in other words, they did not you know, expend all that money, they will have an additional six months through uh, June 30th, uh, 2021, in which to use the remaining amounts toward expenses attributable to the coronavirus but not reimbursed by other sources uh, and or lost revenues in an amount not to exceed the difference between um, you know, either a calendar quarter, uh, any of the calendar quarters, our first two calendar quarters in 2020. So if that were not confusing enough um, – <laughs> If you receive more than $10,000 in aggregate, you need to re to register at the Provider Relief Fund reporting portal, and there is a reference in our show notes to that. Intr uh, also, at present, there is no deadline for completing registration on the portal. Uh, recipients will later receive a notification about when they should complete the second step of the submitting reporting requirements on the use of the funds. Uh, and they're going to send a – the uh, HRSA will send a broadcast email to the email address you provided during the registration process. Uh, the registration is going to take about 20 minutes to complete and must be completed in one session. You cannot save a partially complete registration and make sure you have all the information required to register before you begin. And again, you'll be able to to, to go to that reporting portal right from our website there. So good luck. Um, <laughs> You know, another challenge that we have. But a lot of yeah. you received a significant amount of money, so it was worth the effort. Mm -hmm. Sue, why don't you tell us about one of our clients and a great uh, situation in uh, western New York. Yeah, we were, we were so happy to see her. So Joanne Vecchio of ASC of Western New York, one of our clients, appeared in an article in Buffalo Business First about ASC's pulling together. It was referenced in Becker's ASC review. So I'll just go ahead and... and um, quote their, their summary. So, um, Joanne Vecchio, Administrator of Ambulatory Surgery Center of Western New York in Amherst, said to Buffalo Business First, it was more or less that um, you stayed in your own lane. And they're referencing, you know, before the pandemic. Um, everyone worked independently within their own specialty and their own surgery center parameters. Once this pandemic hit, we were all in the same place. So the centers partnered to allow surgeons from other centers to perform surgeries when elective procedures were banned in Erie County, New York. And they worked to get staff screened and vaccinated uh, for COVID-19, among other efforts. So the partnership helped centers develop relationships and standardized processes around COVID-19 testing, supplies, and human resources sharing. Um, the other center, uh, Patricia Graham, administrator at Endoscopy Center Western New York of Williamsville, New York, said, if we didn't have each other, this would have been a much different road. Yes, there are competition, but we all have things we may need. It was great to have someone to lean on and share ideas. So I just thought that was great how great they really, yeah. you know, you, you put your competition aside and everybody just kind of teams up for the, you know, the betterment of the staff and the patients. And, and I think that's something uh, we as an industry have been very fortunate that we don't compete with each other as much as, you know, perhaps other providers in the industry do. So let's hope that that continues and that uh, we have other stories like that. If, mm -hmm. if you do have a story like that, please send it on to us. Uh, we happen to pick this up because uh, we, we live not very far. And of course, it was one of our clients. Yep. But those are great stories to to tell everybody. And I saw a recent article by Kelsey Waddell in Health Payer Intelligence. It was titled, Ambulatory Surgery Centers Could Save Private Payers $3 Billion. In the article, they were encouraging payers to promote ASCs as ideal sites for joint replacement surgeries to save money and optimize the health and safety of patients. So they estimated that using ASCs for these procedures could save $2 billion for private payers and $1 billion for federal payers. 
The cost of administering medications, they found, is also significantly lower in the ASC setting, which could save another $4 billion per year. And, of course, aside from the cost, they noted that because the ASCs tend to specialize in certain procedures, that they can really focus on improving safety and quality of care. So they have good, you know, good outcomes all the way around. So I found that was kind of what we all know, but you know, it's, nice it's good to, to see, see it. somebody else recognizing it, mm-hmm. not just mm-hmm. us. Yeah. So, uh, Sue, we missed uh, a press release from ASCQuality.org in mm-hmm. October of 2020, and uh, this was from Ann Chimick, who has since passed on. We talked about her a couple episodes ago, uh, and as we were preparing for today's episode, both you and I uh, seemed uh, were researching independently, came up with mm-hmm. this episode uh, independently. Yeah. So it's how much we think together here. And uh, so this press release was ambulatory surgery centers performed essential outpatient surgery safely during the first months of the pandemic based on a surgery, uh, a survey that they uh, that they performed. And here's just some quick notes from a survey of more than 700 ambulatory surgery centers found that the ASCs continue to perform essential outpatient surgery safely during March and April of 2020, with the patients facing virtually no heightened risk of contracting the coronavirus either during or following the procedures. And I think this article just points out how safe we have been and how safe we can be. Hopefully, we can use this type of research or this study to encourage our patients to come back to us. We're going to talk about that in a second mm-hmm. uh, with another article. Yeah, the numbers are pretty surprising. It says a total of 84,446 patients were included in the survey, and only 16 of those patients tested positive for COVID-19 within 14 days after their procedures, which is an extremely small infection rate of just 0.02%. And there's really no way of knowing if the patients actually became infected in the um, surgery center, probably the odds are pretty low that they did because right. that's probably because of the what they're what, out in <laughs> the, was, yeah, was, yeah, yeah, probably what it would be out in there. And I know they said um, many of the surgery centers were in New York, New Jersey, and Louisiana that were, that had high rates of COVID-19 um, yeah. in the general population. So well, and another data. important point is only two of them actually required hospitalization. Mm-hmm. And no patients experienced cardiac issues, blood clotting, or kidney failure. Uh, and, and their hospitalization was uh, primarily for respiratory issues. So really, this is this is incredible news and something we need to get out there. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I, you know, so we've noted during the pandemic uh, and, and very recently uh, talking to some of our centers that ophthalmology ASCs probably have experienced the, the largest uh, downturn in the volume uh, and – and they continue, unfortunately, to experience this downturn. A lot of those patients, unfortunately, in many of those centers have not come back. So I noted in uh, Ophthalmology Times magazine, which is at ophthalmologytimes.com, in their December 29th, 2020 issue, uh, an article entitled Pearls for Drawing Patients Back to Your Practice. And this was by Audrey Talley Rostov, MD, with Northwest Eye Surgeons. Now, this article is really focused more on a on a practice um, that had an ambulatory surgery center. So it references ASCs. But this is, I, I found, uh, I thought this was kind of an interesting article because it talks about some of the things we just talked about, mm-hmm. uh, about how safe ASCs are, and also some ways that perhaps we can entice or try to encourage our patients to come back. So uh, the article did note, it, note that ophthalmology has lost a higher share of patient volume than any other specialty during the initial months of the coronavirus. Uh, and this is based on data from March and April 2020. And it's estimated that the ophthalmology practice volume – 
fell by 81% during that time frame, led by, led by declines, unfortunately, in cataract surgery of 97% wow. and patients seeking care for glaucoma, 88%. That latter one, I think, is mm-hmm. even more important because glaucoma is a, is a condition that can, well, both, both glaucoma and cataracts get worse, but glaucoma could uh, be much more serious, I think. And the author uh, indicated it was certainly true for her practice. And during the two months that they were closed, everything except urgent and emergent cases uh, were, per, were, were put off and they lost 95% of their normal volume. And during this time, the partners worked without pay and most of their employees, including physicians, were furloughed. But the good news is that they bounced back nearly to 100% of their previous volume. Uh, and corneal refractive surgery volume is actually higher now than it was the same time last year. So some of the safety precautions that they had put in place, um, the most important step in, in the recovery, is that was a thoughtful, cautious approach to welcoming patients back safely. They ramped up in, in phases to ensure the protocols were working and workable. They added a check-in kiosk with masked staff member nearby to help. The staff member takes the temperature, asks screening questions, and escorts the patient to an assigned seat. Um, the waiting areas have been spread out and numbered so the staff knows that, for example, Mrs. Smith is in seating area one. We require patients to wear masks and eat, and we even tape them on to ensure they stay properly over the mouth and nose. <laughs> That's interesting. <laughs> During I, I don't know if I'm very procedure. comfortable with that. But, <laughs> I know. But, uh, I mean, trust me, uh, you and I have talked about this, how mm-hmm. annoying it is to us when we see people out in public that uh, yeah. that do not have the uh, the mask over their nose. I, I, yeah. it kind of when we went to get out. our second shot the other yeah. day, the, the security guard letting us in, he was covering his chin. Oh. So I wouldn't have got anything from his chin. But <laughs> his mouth and nose, so Amy and I are kind of backing up. And it's like, oh, my goodness. But... Anyway, and each each physician carries a clear shield for the slit lamp and cleans it between patients. Um, also implemented a no talking rule at the slit lamp. Um, they explained in advance that this measure keeps us both safer. If the patient forgets this rule, I step a few feet away and gently remind them. And all patients undergoing laser surgical procedures such as small incision, lenticular uh, extraction, uh, laser uh, and LASIK procedures um, are required to get a COVID-19 test within 72 hours before surgery. And as we know, in New York, you're required to do that anyway for all surgery. Uh, and, and I've noted that uh, in, in some of the states, some of the states where we work in, that there, are, there is a, a trend toward requiring that uh, before surgery for uh, patients. I think this helps you to uh, feel much more comfortable in bringing patients in. And they're fortunate in in uh, in, in their, this particular center is uh, in Washington State, and they get their test results within twelve mm. to twenty four hours. Wouldn't that be great? Um, so a negative test result and universal mask wearing were essential in offering uh, their services. And the pandemic um, provided good motivation to sanitize our exam rooms in the clinic, even better than we were before. A few changes, a very few changes, were needed to the sterile environment in our ASC. That's a very good point. Is that really? Mm-hmm. We probably shouldn't have had to have done much different, yeah, yeah. given what we're doing in our organizations. I hope, I hope people realize this isn't something we're going to stop doing after the pandemic. This still, this level of cleaning is going to be required. Yeah. Now, the biggest change they noted was limiting the number of people in the lunchroom and the staff lounge. Yeah, so and that we've seen that too that with our, many of our centers because mm-hmm. those places tend to be very small. Yeah. So you know, one of the po- the comments or one of the points of the uh, the the uh, 
the article was that uh, they need to have clear messages to the patients. Uh, many of the patients asked them, should I just wait to have surgery until all is settled down? And what they're really asking is for them to be clear about the trade-off between risks and rewards. And they don't, uh, she pointed out that uh, uh, they don't recommend waiting. And there's two reasons for that. The first is that the risk of giving COVID-19 during surgery is very low. And they've, uh, they are experienced in safety protocols and have many, taken many extra steps to protect patients and staff. And they tell patients that <laughs> an ASC is actually the safest place they go every week. Mm -hmm. I, I feel that way too. I think the most dangerous place is the grocery store where, you know, almost everybody has yeah. to go. And just from our personal experience, when we do hear about a client who has a few staff members that have tested positive, it's really never in the, the center that center, it happened. Right. They got together outside of work yeah. or something like that. So so or I do agree with that. Parties. Yeah. Yeah, yep. we're, we're coming up. Or actually, I think the, uh, the Super Bowl is this evening. Yep. And uh, that'll probably uh, set off a whole series mm -hmm. of mm -hmm. more exposures here. Yeah, it usually is in your own home or, or something like that. And then a second reason not to wait is that there are significant benefits to having surgery. And the reality is um, that all of this is not going away anytime soon. I think we know that even when we're getting mm -hmm. the vaccination, um, <clears throat> these these types of issues are, are not – are here to stay in some form. And then even though they have many talented people working diligently for better treatments and vaccines, they're never going to reach 100% immunity. And that will still need to take precautions to protect themselves and patients from COVID-19. Mm -hmm. And so they noted that waiting indefinitely to schedule cataract surgery could result in a denser lens and increased risk of complications. Um, restoring functional vision is critical for, for fall prevention and mobility in older adults. So I think it's just that point. Like, like I said, you have to weigh the risk benefit. Yeah. And it's very hard to say, you know, how much more risk you're incurring by waiting because right. you just don't know how much worse it's going to get. And I think that point about the fall prevention is important to mobility in mm -hmm. older adults. Uh, even though I'm still very, very young, um, <laughs> you know, I do find even with my glasses yeah. that you know that uh, I can't imagine if the cataract was getting bad. But just with my own glasses, if I'm not looking down the steps, and of course we live in right now, it's extremely icy where we live, mm -hmm. um, and it's just way too easy. I think if you're older, you really need to have as much um, the strongest vision that you can possibly get. So yeah. please don't hold off and may pass that word on to you your, your, uh, your patients. So uh, moving on to the fiscal year 2019 report to Congress, and it's a review of Medicare's program oversight of the accrediting organizations, AOs. Uh, and I've included a link to this fascinating report. And I'm really only joking a little bit. I think this is actually a very good report. Um, it is long, as Sue indicated, and there's a lot of graphs and a lot of data in there, but uh, there's a lot of very interesting things. So let's just give a little bit of a background. So the report reviews the accrediting organization activities in fiscal year 2018, uh, which is from October 1st, 2017 to September 30th, 2018. And it compares the activity of prior years and outlines the current CMS oversight of approved Medicare accreditation programs. Sue, why don't you talk a little bit about the validation program? So CMS is piloting a new way to assess AO's ability to ensure the facilities and suppliers comply with CMS requirements. And CMS evaluates the ability of AOs, again, accrediting organizations, to accurately assess providers and suppliers' compliance with health and safety standards through a validation survey process. So historically, CMS has measured the effective, their effectiveness by choosing a sample of facilities and suppliers and performing a state-conducted assessment survey within 60 days following an AO study and comparing what their results are. 
In a pilot test, CMS is eliminating the second state-conducted validation survey and instead using direct observation during the original AO-run survey to evaluate the AO's program and assessing compliance with CMS conditions of coverage. So they'll show up on that same day. Right, exactly. So so speaking as a surveyor, this is going to be very nerve-wracking for mm-hmm. us. And, and for the centers, suddenly you've got centers. a crowd. Well, that's especially right. Especially right now. I, I, that's why I don't think this is going to roll out right mm-hmm. away. And mm-hmm. we also know that surveys, uh, you know, that, that definitely survey activity is down for deemed yeah. status surveys. Uh, though they are catching up, I think, pretty quickly here. I'm not sure where CMS is on this. Uh, so I think this is going to make for a very nervous survey team, yeah. uh, very uh, difficult uh, uh, mm-hmm. process for um, the, the surveyed organization. And yet again, I, I, I don't know how many times I can say this. Do not get overconfident about your upcoming survey. And you're going to see why in a few minutes because survey organizations are going to be under a lot of, imp- a lot yeah. of pressure to improve. Yeah, they're going to, I'm sure, be as strict as they've ever been because they have right. somebody looking over their shoulder. So this this new approach that they're suggesting is another example of the wide-ranging effort of CMS to eliminate duplication and relief burden, reducing the amount of time that healthcare facilities must spend on compliance activities. And note that the, this, pro, this new program, this new approach is effective immediately. So I wanted to give uh, some statistical uh, oversight or – uh, summaries here. So the total number of uh, deemed facilities in the United States right now are 1,701 of approximately 5,800 surgery centers. And during that one year, 305 uh, surveys, initial surveys were done, 448 renewal surveys were done, and 59 centers were denied accreditation or deemed status accreditation. And so they they studied uh, quite a number of uh, accrediting organizations. There's four top ones. Uh, interestingly, the largest number of deemed status accredited organizations are through HHC with 840. Second largest was uh, the Joint Commission at 620. Third was Quad ASF at 192. And then HFAP uh, was 24. And then IMQ was 25. And we know that IMQ now is uh, no longer in existence. Now, why is there so, why is the number for initial surveys kind of close to the renewal surveys? Aren't there a lot more centers out there that have been in existence? Well, the reason for that is actually because, remember, renewal surveys only come up every three years. Mm-hmm. So uh, you almost have to kind of triple that number in order to compare it to uh, to the others. And initial surveys could just be a function of people switching over to deemed status survey from a non-deemed status. Oh, that's true. Yeah. Uh, interestingly, as I think we noted, 59 ASCs were denied uh, uh, deemed status accreditation. Uh, of those, Triple uh, HC was the largest number. In other words, they uh, denied 33 centers. Uh, Joint Commission denied 14 centers, and Quad ASF only denied eight. So, interesting uh, statistics there. Just kind of gives you an idea of how much uh, the Joint Commission and Triple uh, HC dominate the market. So, moving on to uh, the denials of initial uh, denials uh, with uh, initial surveys. So, we know this, or hopefully our audience knows this too, that if you're having an initial deemed status survey and you have a condition level finding, you instantly fail both the survey and certification and have to go through the process again. And for the fiscal year 2017, three of the accrediting organization excelled on this measure. Uh, two of the AOs uh, performed well, scoring 95% and 99%. So, if you excelled, you had 100% compliance. In fiscal year 2018, five of the accrediting organizations 
uh, excelled with 100% uh, compliance with the, this measure. And one accrediting organization performed well, scoring 95%. And two accrediting organizations demonstrated an opportunity for improvement, scoring between 75% and 83%. So the in 2018, the organizations that we uh, know the most that excelled were AAAC and HFAP. Those that performed well were Quad ASF and the one that had an opportunity for improvement was surprisingly the Joint Commission. So they actually, mm -hmm. of those three or four major organizations out there yeah. that we're familiar with in the ASC space, the Joint Commission uh, performed most poorly in uh, denying initial surveys uh, with condition level findings. So the second uh, category was timely facility notification of survey results. And keep in mind, this is before the pandemic. So this is back in fiscal year 2018. And what we found is that uh, only one organization of the, the ones that we are f most familiar with uh, performed uh, or excelled, and that was the Joint Commission. HHC actually had an opportunity for improvement, and Quad ASF and HFAP both performed well. So now looking at uh, the validation surveys and, and what came out of it, what uh, – so this interesting – this information was kind of interesting. Of the uh, 58 validation surveys performed in fiscal year 2018, 28 surveys had condition level deficiencies uh, and 24 – accreditation organization surveys missed comparable deficiencies. So that was a uh, pretty significant. So there was a disparity rate overall of 41%. Moving into information that's probably much more interesting to people is that <clears throat> if we look at the uh, let's just look at uh, the four major organizations, Quad ASF, HHC, HFAP, and Joint Commission. So there was an overall disparity rate uh, for fiscal year 2016 to 2018 of 37%. The organization that performed the most uh, most poorly was Quad ASF. The overall disparity rate was 57%, meaning that 57% of the time they did not identify uh, items that uh, they should have identified. HHC did the best at 37%. Um, HFAP and NIT in those years didn't have enough data to uh, be statistic, statistically uh, valid and uh, Joint Commission was uh, right in the middle there at 43%. I think the more interesting was the disparities in uh, health and safety versus physical environment. So again, starting with Quad ASF, 57% of the time they uh, missed health and safety items. And 29% of the time, they miss physical environment items. HHC uh, did the best. They had uh, health and uh, safety. In other words, they missed it 30% of the time. And for physical environment, 20% of the time. Uh, HFAP, again, no data uh, because they were uh, statistically uh, – uh, didn't have uh, enough uh, surveys to be statistically valid. And the Joint Commission, 43% overall disparity rate, as we mentioned before, and 14% of the time uh, they missed health and safety and 33% of the time they missed uh, physical environment. So a lot of room for improvement uh, there uh, overall. So, I, you know, Sue, I think one of the things that I found, too, is the three-year performance and looking mm -hmm. at it. It looked like uh, Quad ASF 
uh, kept getting worse from 2016 to 2018. They, so that for health and safety disparity, they started at 17% disparity and were up to 57%, mm -hmm. uh, steady increase. Triple um, uh, HC uh, was at 26% in 2016, dropped to 11% in 2017. That's when we reported last, and then uh, jumped up to 30% in 2000. Uh, 18. Again, we're talking about health and safety. And Joint Commission has uh, um, kind of been the reverse there. They were 24% in 2016, jumped up to 35% in 2017, and down to 14%. But the the area that we've most concerned about over uh, time has been the physical environment disparity. And uh, 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 Quad-ASF has been getting better. They were at 33% in 2016 and then dropped to 29% in 2018. Uh, Triple HC had the best in the 2017 timeframe um, at 14% and then jumped to 20% disparity. And then the Joint Commission has been steadily getting worse. So they were at 18% up uh, in 2016 and in 2018 they jumped up to 33%. So overall uh, for physical environment – Triple uh, HC had the lowest rate of disparity. Second lowest was Quad ASF. Third was Joint Commission for Health and Safety. Uh, the best was in 2018 was actually Joint Commission. Triple HC was second, and then uh, Quad ASF was at 57 percent. So, so examining the specific condition level uh, deficiency cited by the. Uh, the organizations across the uh, all the validation surveys provided an indication of the types of quality problems that exist in these facilities, as well as the relationship between the uh, um, uh, the the state agency and the accrediting organization citations for specific conditions. The state agencies identify more physical environment condition level deficiencies than any other type of deficiency on validation surveys, and accrediting organizations miss a significant number of those uh, physical environment deficiencies. So I think a huge takeaway, which again we've been talking about before, is that these physical environment surveys are going to keep getting uh, tougher uh, because the results of all of this information goes back to the survey organizations and becomes part of the plan of correction that they need to complete uh, and, uh, and prove that they're on, on the road to uh, improving. So included in the analysis was a table that showed the number and type of condition level deficiency cited in the Ambulatory Surgery Center 60-day validation surveys. And uh, for physical environment, uh, 29 of the 92 citations were for environment. And 16 of those 29 were missed by the accrediting organization. Second largest was infection control. So in 16 of the 92 uh, validation surveys, infection control was not uh, was cited. And eight, eight times out of those 16, in other words, half of that time, the accrediting organization did not have it. Third was uh, 12 of those uh, 92 had governing body and management citations, and eight of those were missed by the accrediting organization, and it just kept moving down from there. So really not good news for, uh, you know, for that survey activity. So CMS has identified the top conditions and life safety categories driving the disparity rate. The physical environment is one of the leading dispar disparity conditions, accounting for 22 to 33 percent of the disparate surveys between 2016 and 2018 throughout the whole program. The biggest one, no surprise, was fire and smoke barrier. It remains the top disparate category. 
uh, and it, it accounts for nearly 21% of all the missed life safety category citations. So keep it a very close eye on that fire and smoke barrier and make sure there's no uh, issues with it. You know, the types of issues we tend to find are penetrations through it or the wall not going all the way up to the ceiling. I mean, in other words, a condition or situation in which the uh, the contractor never never installed it properly in the first place. And then hazardous areas are the second highest top disparity uh, and accounted for 16% of the missed citations. Then the fi fire smoke barrier, hazardous area, sprinkler, means of egress, and doors are the top five life safety citations uh, across the board. Triple mm -hmm. C had the lowest average health and safety at 22% and the physical lowest uh, physical environment disparity rate at 17% for ASCs, while Quad ASF had the highest average health and safety and physical environment disparity. So they fared the worst. Now, when they do this, when they follow somebody around, they, well, for right now, they're doing it separately, right? Correct. I wonder if they compare. I wonder if um, there are things that, say, Triple H C found that the other surveyors didn't find. I'd be that's interested. A, that's a to good know. question. Because maybe this is, you know, a large function of just that. It just depends what you're looking at. Like what yeah. happens even if you have triple H C every time, there's going to be different things every time. Well and, and the other yeah. I mean I think that's an interesting question is that I you know, I guess the survey organization or the, the state agency probably would never, you know, bring that up or it wouldn't be yeah. brought out. Here. And it probably wouldn't be wise for Triple H C or Quad ASF to say, you know, guys. Yeah, right. <laughs> you didn't catch this. <laughs> So there were a number of uh, recommendations that came out of it. The accrediting organizations clearly need to focus their interventions on the top disparate conditions, and each accrediting organization needs to develop interventions focusing on their high-volume disparate conditions for coverage. If the accrediting organizations were to focus on those uh, conditions with the highest disparity rates, they would have an opportunity to possibly impact their disparity rate. So uh, CMS will continue to monitor the disparate findings on a quarterly basis concurrent with the fiscal year in which the validation surveys are conducted. And the trending of the conditions for coverage involved as well as an identification of the problem facilities will dis be discussed on the monthly accrediting organization liaison calls. And action plans to address identified trends and disparity rates will be required of each accrediting organization. So uh, again, we've been t warning everybody, be prepared for more difficult surveys and and uh, the results of this are certainly going to have an impact uh, on your next survey, especially if, uh, um, you know, you're in an area where the accrediting organization or you're worth one of the accrediting organizations that, uh, that fared quite poorly. So let's uh, talk about recent experiences. And since we're already running at uh, 49 minutes here, I think <laughs> um, we'll only mention one. Mm -hmm. Why don't you talk about this one, Sue? Okay, so just a reminder for everybody to keep track of the monitoring of their medication fridge and or the tissue fridge uh, freezer. Make sure you're documenting what the temperature is probably twice a day is monitoring it constantly. But Correct. if you have a log, jotting down the temperature twice a day. Right. So <clears throat> we had a situation where one of our clients unfortunately had some tissue that was going to be used in a procedure later mm -hmm. in the week. Um, and the um, uh, the nurse manager went to uh, check uh, the refrigerator. I don't know why she you – know, I mean, it's not something that she normally does. No, I think she was actually getting ready for the procedure. Oh, it wasn't? Okay. Maybe. And then uh, what she found is that the uh, tissue had, had uh, defrosted. 
Mm-hmm. And she immediately went back and looked at the log and somebody had forgotten for the past three or four days to log yeah. the temperature. And as a result, uh, they lost all that tissue. I mean, thousands of dollars mm-hmm. worth of tissue. And the whole thing, I mean, that's a, a huge waste of money. But my thought was also, what if it had been an intermittently working yeah. refrigerator? What if it had gone down for a few hours or overnight, and then the next day everything looked fine and they were to implant something like that. Because the tissue would be dead. Yeah. Yeah. And and that's that's the point that we always make. You always need to to have some continuous monitoring capability, meaning, you know, either uh, high-low temperature monitoring on your uh, device or Mm -hmm. a continuous monitoring thing. And make sure your your employees – and make sure your employees – um, you know, are doing these daily checks and, and recording them properly. Mm-hmm. And um, that you're saving th- that documentation because you don't want right. somebody to come back ever with some kind of a side effect or, yeah. uh, you know, a tissue implant that had a problem and then not be able to prove that you had, you know, really kept it all within range and that everything was done right yeah. on your end. So yet another reason, I, I this seems to be an ongoing problem too, Sue, and when I t- we take on a mm-hmm. new client is having to remind people of the requirement of continuous yeah. monitoring of those medication refrigerators and, and, and in the case of a tissue, even more so because of the dollar amount that's mm-hmm. involved there is, is, is quite a bit higher. Yeah. And I think with them, we ended up, you know, it, it did have to be kind of a disciplinary action. And we had also decided to make a couple people responsible for doing it, and they're actually both going to initial it each time because that way if somebody's out sick or whatever, you still got a backup. If you don't have somebody specific, then everybody thinks somebody else is doing it. So let's take a break, and we'll come back in our focus segment and talk about patient registration, pre-op. We'll talk about patient registration, advanced directives, and notification of ownership, as well as grievances. Is your ASC meeting all the infection control requirements in the new normal? Let the team of experts at Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies and the ASC podcast with John Gailey help you be prepared for the new normal with a range of resources. Be prepared for the infection control challenges of your ASC. Our resources include our free podcast. We'll be adding content to help keep you apprised of the changes and the requirements for infection control. And of course, the podcast is always free. And the ASC podcast now has the industry's leading education program for infection control coordinators, which we refer to as the ASC Infection Control Coordinator Training 2020. And we'll be updating this every year, but uh, this training is available at the ASCpodcast.com website. This is a recording of the training program to prepare nurses uh, for the role as an infection control prevention coordinator or to improve the skills of uh, coordinators that already have that position in the ASC setting. And it was recorded on April 7, 2020. This is a full-day course focused both on the basic skills necessary to become an infection control coordinator and to build on skills that current coordinators already have. Particular emphasis is placed on the infection control challenges of our current environment and preparing for more rigorous surveys in their future. After completing the program, attendees will receive a certificate demonstrating that they received the training. The cost of the training is $199.99, and you can get more information about it at the ASCpodcast.com website. 
Ambulatory Healthcare Strategy now offers uh, ongoing retainer-based infection control oversight, which includes an annual infection control mock survey, or more frequently, if you wish, uh, review and revisions to your infection control program annually and, uh, and as needed, annual competencies for your staff on infection control, and that's done during the mock survey, annual training on infection control, also done during this survey, and that's designed for your staff, assistance in investigations of any infections that you might have, assistance in preparing your annual infection control risk assessment, and, of course, access to all of the AHS infection control resources that our clients have come to rely on. And for more information on our retainers, visit the Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies website at ah-strategies.com or call John Gailey at 585-594-1167. So in our focus segment today, uh, we actually got this recommendation from one of our attendees at the uh, ASC boot camp mm-hmm. conference. So uh, we thought we would talk today about patient registration, advanced directives, notification of ownership, uh, and grievances. So let's start by talking about the conditions for coverage, which uh, the, the one that's most applicable here is uh, 416.50, which is the condition for coverage related to patient rights. The ASC must inform the patient or the patient's representative or surrogate of the patient's rights and must protect and promote the exercise of these rights as set forth in this section. The ASC must also post the written notice of patient rights in a place or places within the ASC likely to be noticed by patients waiting for treatment or by the patient's representative or surrogate if applicable. And this means, you know, generally the waiting room. Right. Um, pre-op area. Pre-op area. At least one spot. Yeah. yeah. So if you have a really large waiting room or two different waiting rooms, you know, just post a couple of them or so up there. It's no harm in having a few extras rather than right. ending up having people not notice them. So the standard applicable to this uh, notice of rights states, an ASC must prior to the start of the surgical procedure provide the patient, the patient's representative, or the patient's surrogate with verbal and written notice of the patient rights in a language and manner that ensures the patient, the representative, or the surrogate understand all the patient's rights as set forth in this section. The ASC's notice of rights must include the address and telephone number of the state agency to which patients may report complaints as well as a website for the medic. The Office of the Medicare Ombudsman. Now, when they say verbal, you can just simply ask if they have received this, if they would, you know, if they right. saw them. You don't have to read over the entire. Yes, that's true. I think the uh, more recent interpretations have been that as long as you ask the patient if they received it and if mm-hmm. they understand it and if they have any questions, you will, uh, you'll be fine. So this is very frequently a problem. And that's why we're going to talk about this in our special staff edition, uh, which we'll record after this and will be available as uh, episode 124 is that it is very important that your registration staff ask these questions and then Mm -hmm. get the patient to sign off on it. So in the interpretive guidelines, it indicates that the the ASC must ensure that the written notice is posted in one or more places as we talked about. And the determining factor in whether the notice is posted in a manner that uh, all patients or the representatives of the survey it's our, is that they're likely to see it in that location. Mm-hmm. And the notice must be provided both verbally and in writing prior to the patient's movement out of the preoperative area and, if applicable, before the patient is medicated with the drugs mm-hmm. that suppresses the patient's consciousness. I think this is kind of logical that you don't mm-hmm. want don't to give it to them it in afterwards. the surgical suite. Right. And- <laughs> 
And it's not acceptable for an ASC to provide the notice when the patient has already been moved into the operating room. Mm-hmm. And again, that's very yes. obvious. Now, it doesn't require that every instance the notice be delivered just prior to the start of the surgical procedure. So instead, the regulation indicates that the latest acceptable time is on the day of surgery. So don't mm-hmm. assume that it has to be given on that day. Uh, so many centers give it to them either in the mail or in the mm-hmm. physician's office, which is perfectly acceptable. Yeah. But on the day of surgery, you've got to ask if they received it, offer them another copy. Now, in other words, don't rely that they're going to always mm-hmm. uh, have had that. If yeah. they say, oh, I don't remember it, you need to offer them another copy of it. And then you have to get them to uh, sign that they received that document to prove that you have uh, met that regulation. Mm-hmm. And another point is the notice must be provided regardless of the type of procedure. Yes, it's a very minor procedure. It still has to be provided to the patient. And it is acceptable, though, for the ASC to develop a generic preprinted notice for use with all of its patients as long as the notice includes all the patient rights established under the regulation. And actually, uh, we have a list of them later on here. And this information, we're going to have a reference to or link to the uh, conditions for coverage and interpretive guidelines here. I think I'm going to leave that in the show notes for every episode from here on out. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know why I never thought about that before. Moving on, the next standard is disclosure of physician financial interest or ownership. And the ASC must disclose in accordance with Part 420 of this subchapter. And again, I'll provide links to that section. Uh, and where applicable, provide a list of the physicians who have financial interest or ownership in the ASC facility. Disclosure of the information must be in writing. In other words, they must have access to a written notification here, which is another frequent problem. And so would this be posted as well or – so usually paperwork. it would be provided in writing, but it is acceptable for it to be posted. But here is, herein lies the question is, does that mean it's in writing and was that provided to the patient? So I think it can be posted, but certainly you need to have a copy of it available so that you can hand to the patient. Mm-hmm. And again, you want to verify with the patient that they did receive notice and sign off on, on that uh, notification. Mm-hmm. And again, another very frequently cited area, very frequent uh, situation where employees have, you know, especially if they're feeling rushed, if that pre-op nurse comes out and says, mm-hmm. where's the patient? You know, that uh, poor reg- registration clerk is, you know, rushing to get all this information done and and they uh, they tend to, you know, cut corners, unfortunately. Yeah, even having uh, like a sort of a mini script for people to remember if you have new staff right. or you're afraid they might feel that pressure if there's a surveyor there or like you said, if they're trying to rush, um, you know, just have that a little list of things that you have to make sure that they're asking for. Or listen to the podcast that we're about to record, number 124, yes. which will actually be for staff uh, that could mm-hmm. listen to that and remember all these things. So uh, that's a great idea. <laughs> so so an ASC that has physician owners or investors must provide written notice to the patient or the patient's representative or surrogate prior to the start of the surgical procedure that the ASC has physician owners or physicians with a financial interest. Um, and then Part 420 uh, provides definitions and requirements concerning the ownership and control. CMS considers the disclosure of physician financial interest or ownership to be part of the overall patient rights information that is now required to be given prior to the start of the procedure. ASCs that meet the physician ownership and control threshold specified in Part 420 must disclose their physician ownership to patients and provide them with a list of physicians who have a financial interest or ownership in the ASC. So it's not just that you provide them and a, a, a 
the information that they're an owner, that their physician is an owner, but a list of the other owners also. So the intent of this disclosure requirement is to assist the patient in making an informed decision about, about his care by making the patient or the patient's representative or surrogate aware that the physicians who refer their patients to the ASC for procedures or physicians that perform procedures in the ASC also have an ownership interest in the ambulatory surgery center. The written notice must disclose to patients in such a way that it can be understood by all patients that their doctors are owners of the ASC. And it also needs to be worded in such a way that people aren't, um, that, that if they're not an accountant or a lawyer, that they can easily understand it. And lastly, the ASC must also be aware that the age and ability to understand like the mental or cognitive abilities of its patients in considering the way in which they document that ownership. So why don't you talk about what the surveyors are going to be asking? And this is interesting because note some of the, the, the things that a surveyor may or may not ask. Mm-hmm. Okay, so the surveyor may ask the ASC whether it has reported in accordance with 42 CFR Part 420 to the Medicare program whether the ASC has any physicians with ownership financial interests. If the answer is yes, then the ASC is required to comply with the requirement for disclosure to patients, as we just discussed. If the ASC's response is no, then the ASC has no disclosure requirement and the surveyor does not have to investigate any further. If the ASC indicates it has physicians with ownership financial interest in the ASC, um, there are some further questions. Does the ASC have policies and procedures in place to make the required disclosures to patients? Are the policies and procedures consistent with the regulatory requirements? Does the ASC provide a written notice of disclosure to all patients prior to the start of the surgical procedure, including a list of physicians with financial interests or ownership in the ASC? Um, they may interview ASC staff to assess their knowledge and understanding of the physician ownership notice requirements, including the ASC's process for delivering the notice. So notice the importance of proper education here. And again, that's something we're going to talk about in the staff episode here mm-hmm. is making sure that employees know that they might be queried during a mm-hmm. survey uh, and would this. would this be mostly the reception staff mm-hmm. who's going to talk to patients or do they expect, I mean, would they it could just be anybody really? Or? Yeah, it should be uh, because any a patient can ask anybody in the organization. Now, mm-hmm. you know, if the employee doesn't know this information, they should at least know that that list is available, mm-hmm. I think. Mm-hmm. They can also interview patients to ask them whether they were aware that the ASC has physician owners and investors. So I think mm-hmm. that's the most dangerous right there yeah. is that if your patient comes back and, and I, unfortunately, I think Part of the time, you might have done everything right, mm-hmm. but the patient doesn't remember. Because let's face it, you're going in for surgery. Yeah, you don't. You're not thinking about no. that stuff until right. it's the stuff that you feel like pertains to your safety and health. And then they can ask if they recall getting a written notice about this prior to the start of the surgical procedure. So just be prepared for surveyors to ask those mm-hmm. questions. Let's move on to advanced directives. So the standard for advanced directives: the ASC must comply with the following requirements. They must provide the patient, or as appropriate, the patient's representative with written information concerning its policies on advanced directives, including a description of applicable state health and safety laws, and if requested, official state advanced directive forms. They have to inform the patient or, as appropriate, the patient's representative of the patient's right to make informed decisions regarding the patient's care. And document in a prominent part of the patient's current medical record whether or not the individual has executed an advanced directive. And that's probably one of the more difficult things mm-hmm. because often that's one that's the citation. If I'm citing yeah. a place, that's the citation right there is that it really hadn't been documented very appropriately as to what happened. Or they might document, yes, the patient has an advanced directive and then there's no advanced directive attached. Mm-hmm. 
So in looking at our interpretive guidelines, uh, the uh, CMS states the following. Each ASC patient has a right to formulate an advanced directive consistent with the applicable state law and have the ASC staff implement and comply with the advanced directive subject to the ASC's limitations on the basis of conscience. So the most common limitation uh, would be a DNR order. So a mm-hmm. surgery center does have a right to basically tell the patient that they, they'll accept all their advanced directives yeah. except a DNR. Now, I think I've mentioned this on prior uh, podcasts here. Unfortunately, I find uh, not infrequently when I'm surveying a place that they have a comment in there that this organization, like that actually states this organization does not accept advanced directives. In my view, that's an immediate jeopardy situation because what they're saying is I I completely ignore the law and, you know, I'm not going to pay attention to any of your advanced directives and we know a patient has a right to that. What we know they really mean is that they don't accept a DNR order or do not resuscitate yeah. order. And that should be specifically spelled out and the reason for it as right. well. Right. And, and that should be your policy. Mm-hmm. Now, when we say that you, they, you need to notify the patient of the policy, we're not talking about providing the policy form. Mm-hmm. It just needs to be a summary of that. And, and as I said, that is the most frequent. Almost all the time I see uh, that limitation being placed on it. And to that end, the facility must provide the patient or the patient's representative or as appropriate uh, as appropriate the following information in writing prior to the start of the surgical procedure. Information on the ASC's policies on advanced directives. And again, just needs to be a summary. doesn't need to be the actual policy. Mm-hmm. A description of the applicable state health and safety laws. And note that a CMS does not determine whether the description is accurate. Uh, state survey agencies are responsible for making that determination. And if requested, official state advanced directive forms as such exist. The ASC must include in the information concerning its advanced directive policies a clear and precise statement of limitations of the if the ASC cannot implement an advanced directive on the basis of conscience or any other specific reason that is permitted under state law. And again, it's generally that one part of it. Yeah. And then th- it gets to the next point. The A blanket statement of refusal mm-hmm. by the ASC to comply with the patient advance directives is not permissible. So it's right there in the interpretive guidelines that you just can't say, I'm not going to accept any, any advance directives. Yeah. However, if and to the extent permitted under state law, the ASC may decline to implement elements of an advance directive on the basis of conscience or any other reason permitted under state law if it includes in the information concerning its advanced directives policy a clear and precise statement of limitations. So again, this is a very important area and probably one of those areas I find the least amount of education being given to the registration staff on this. Mm-hmm. So we will try to do a pretty good job of that in the um, in the, the special staff episode here to assist. But you will need to make sure that it's part of your educational program every year and it's part of the orientation for all of your registration staff or any staff that fills in for the registration staff that they know how to handle these things. And the last part of this section talks about grievances. And the reason we bring it up during this particular discussion is because this is usually an item or this should be an item that's included in your patient rights and responsibilities. So the ASC must establish a grievance procedure for documenting the existence, submission, investigation, and disposition of a patient's written or verbal grievance to the ASC. The following criteria must be met. All alleged Violations and grievances relating to but not limited to mistreatment, neglect, verbal, mental, sexual, or physical abuse must be fully documented. And all allegations must be immediately reported to a person in authority in the ASC. Only substantiated allegations must be reported to the state authority or the local authority or both. 
and the grievance process must specify time frames for review of the grievance and the provisions of a response. And usually that's like 30 days, I think, in general. The ASC, in responding to the grievance, must investigate all the grievances made by the patient, the patient's representative, or the patient's surrogate regarding treatment or care that is or fails to be furnished. And the ASC must document how the grievance process was addressed, as well as provide the patient, the patient's representative, or the patient's surrogate with written notice of its decision. The decision must contain the name of an ASC contact person, the steps taken to investigate the grievance, the result of the grievance process, and the date the grievance process was completed. Now, there's limits to how much detail you have to give. That's correct, yeah. Yeah, you don't have to, like, you know, say that we fired this individual or disciplined them. Uh, You just have to kind of provide a summary of what was done here. And keep in mind that the patient still has the right or the the surrogate or the representative still has the right to go to another uh, organization, such as your Mm -hmm. crediting organization or the state or even CMS directly through the ombudsman program. So um, if you don't follow through on this and if they don't receive, you know, an answer to this, uh, this could be escalated to a much higher level level. So that provides a, a nice summary of the uh, the grievance processes and, and just me, need to make sure that uh, you fully disclose in the uh, patient rights and responsibilities how to file a grievance and try to encourage people to file that grievance with the organization first before they move on to, you know, the state or the accrediting organization or CMS directly. And then lastly, this particular condition for coverage goes on and talks about uh, exercising the rights and respect of property and person. And it states that the patient has a right to the following items. So these are the things that need to be included in your patient rights and responsibilities. So this actually goes with what we talked about earlier, but it shows up later in the condition for coverage. So it starts by saying the patient uh, has the right to be free from any act of discrimination or reprisal. They have a right to voice grievances regarding treatment or care that is or fails to be provided. They have a right to be fully informed about treatment or uh, the procedure and the expected outcome before it is performed. Now, if a patient is adjudged incompetent under applicable state laws by a court of proper jurisdiction, the rights of the patient are exercised by the person appointed under state law to act on the patient's behalf. And if a state court has not adjudged a patient incompetent or any legal representative or surrogate designated by the patient in accordance with the state law may exercise the patient's rights to the extent allowed by state law. So you need to be careful that uh, uh, that you get the appropriate documentation um, of anybody that is acting in the stead of the, of the patient. Mm-hmm. And then lastly, it talks about the standard of, pa- of privacy and safety. The patient has a right to personal privacy. To receive care in a safe setting. To be free from all forms of abuse or harassment. And the standard of confidentiality of clinical records. The ASC must comply with the department's rules for the privacy and security of individually identifiable health information. As specified at 45 CFR parts 160 and 164. And that's uh, the the HIPAA regulations. So, So that's it for the conditions for coverage. So I guess the question is, what should you be doing at registration? Mm-hmm. And again, we're going to go into quite a bit of detail in uh, the uh, staff episode here, but let's just kind of just summarize it here. So you need to to make sure that your registration offers a copy of the patient rights and responsibilities. They don't need to take it. And if it was given in the office or mailed to them, make sure the patient signs off that they've received the form. You need to answer any questions and ask if they have any questions. And this will usually satisfy the requirement for verbally informing patients of their rights and responsibilities. And again, make sure that it's posted appropriately. And then you need to offer a copy of the patient privacy notice. 
And again, they don't need to take it. Now, remember, this is for HIPAA purposes, and this is a separate document. So I know there seems to be some confusion, uh, like if you, I, I've noted in some centers when I ask for the patient privacy notice, they point me to the patient rights and responsibilities. Well, that's not the patient privacy notice. And again, you need to make sure that the uh, patient privacy notice is posted and freely available in the center. And offer a copy of the ownership disclosure. And again, we don't need to make sure that they don't have to take it with them, mm -hmm. but they need to have disclosure and it needs to be in writing. And offer a copy of the advanced directive policy or a summary thereof, not the entire policy. Right. And then also, if your state has uh, more specific advanced directive policies, for example, New York, uh, uh, Ohio, you know, many other states have some uh, specific requirements, make sure that your uh, registration staff complies with that. And have them sign the consent to treatment form. And we didn't actually talk about that before, but the consent to treatment is a document that allows your nursing staff or your staff in the center to treat the patient. Uh, it's separate from the, uh, the procedural consent, uh, and it's a very generic form uh, that allows the patient. This isn't something that they need to have explained to them. It's something that allows your, your staff at the surgery center to provide that care. And it notes that um, that will include verification that they were offered all the previous information, so they'll be right. So you can have one three, form. four lines, and then they check that yeah. out and sign. Yeah, it. one form can accomplish mm -hmm. all of this, mm -hmm. and then of course make sure that they obtain the registration information, as we've talked about in our finance conference. Mm -hmm. So um, hopefully this has provided a good background on registration. I know I don't think we've ever talked about this before, so hopefully this has been helpful for you. So let's take a short break, and we'll come back, and we'll have a quick update on uh, events going on in the ASC industry. In this segment, we discuss other learning opportunities in the ASC industry. If you'd like your event to be included in the podcast, please send the event information to info at ASCpodcast.com. So ASCA 2021 is virtual again this year. It's going to be April 26th, May 3rd, and May 10th. It's going to be the same content, they say, that is delivered virtually instead mm -hmm. of in person. Uh, if only, I mean, yes, I know it's the same conferences, but boy, it isn't the same feeling. I, I just can't wait till we can get back to doing this in person again. Yeah. So for more information, go to ASCassociation.org. And the ASC Association's 2021 Virtual Management Essentials for ASC Administrators Seminar is March 1st and 2nd, and John will be one of the speakers. And I'll be talking about the, I'll be uh, doing the finance section of it. ASC leaders uh, must be well informed and prepared to meet all the applicable federal regulatory requirements and accrediting organization standards. So here from expert faculty with extensive experience in ASC management as they discuss what ASC leaders need to know about compliance, finance, and quality management. And the credentialing workshop recorded live on December 8th is available by going to the ASC podcast website, ASCpodcast.com. And please go to that website because we have all kinds of great information up there. Uh, you can access all of our previous conferences, all of our previous podcasts. Uh, and Sue, uh, I didn't mention this before, but our staff podcast, uh, the staff edition that we issued a couple weeks ago, and mm -hmm. we'll have another one today, uh, actually did very well. It had uh, it, it beat the record for the highest number of listens. So clearly you are asking your employees to listen to it, and uh, we're very proud. They're very happy that uh, it became a very successful program, even on the first time we tried it. So hopefully mm -hmm. the one we're going to publish next uh, will be just as successful. Yep. 
And we do want to remind everyone to become a patron member of the podcast. The patron member program, which is also known as ASC Central, is an exclusive membership website that provides a one-stop ASC regulatory and compliance operations and financial management resource for busy administrators, nurse managers, and business office managers. And resources include uh, some of our virtual conferences for free, links uh, to various information that's important for ASCs, policies and procedures, forms, drills, and discounts on services and books, and as well as free access to AEU credits. Membership helps to defray the cost of producing the podcast, including the research staff, travel costs when we actually get back, equipment costs, which are becoming even uh, more expensive here as our equipment gets, I don't know why it's getting worn out already, Sue, <laughs> um, and you know various production costs, including the, the cost to maintain our uh, website, etc. So for more information, you may b- visit uh, ASCpodcast.com. So that's it for this episode of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey. Join us again, and please consider becoming a patron. And do us the honor of uh, telling your friends and your colleagues and and, uh, hit that subscribe button so that you get notified right away when we drop a new episode. The sound editor for this episode is Susan Cronkite. Executive producer is John Gailey. Research assistance is provided by Susan Cronkite, Jenna Alvarez when she is back from maternity leave, Judy D'Ambrosio, Alex Borneman, Zach Kalritis, and Lori Rodericks. Music is provided by Media Sushi and Mike Noah. And the ASC podcast with John Gailey is hosted on Podbean and is available on all major podcast channels. This podcast is an educational and operational tool and is not intended to be a comprehensive resource for all rules, regulations, and standards that an ambulatory surgery center must meet. The advice provided should not be considered as, nor does it constitute legal advice or opinion. When reviewing specific situations involving legal and regulatory issues, attorneys and other professionals should be consulted. This has been a production of Eden Group Development. All rights are reserved. We would like to thank our sponsors, Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies, Surgical Information Systems, Encompass Healthcare Data Solutions, BHG Patient Lending, Medicus IT, and Intelair. For more information about our sponsors, visit our website at ASCPodcast.com. If you're interested in advertising or sponsoring the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, please email us at info at ASCPodcast.com. We would love to hear your questions and comments. Please email us at comments at ASCPodcast.com.